Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 356. Thanks for tuning in. This is Tim Maluli. With me today is Tom Maluli and Brendan Maluli. Hey, guys. Hello. Gang's all here. Beautiful Friday. Yep, sure is. Did you guys hear that Fidelity is going to let teenagers trade stocks now? Thoughts? That was my sigh. (laughs) (laughs) To give more background on that, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about how Fidelity uh, is introducing no-fee brokerage accounts to teenagers that are 13 to 17 years old. They can't drive a car or vote or drink alcohol or anything, but they can trade trade meme stocks if they want. There's a, there's a couple catches there. The, the parent or guardian needs to have an investment account at Fidelity already. The parent essentially opens the account for the kid, and then once it's open, the account completely transfers into the teenager's hands to do as they please, and the parents hold the power to close the account at any time, uh, and they can get alerts if they want to see their kid trading. Essentially, the whole power of the account is in the hands of the kid. Uh, This may sound like sour grapes, but uh, it, it sounds to me like Fidelity is really trying to thread the needle here because you can't have a minor entering into a contract. And when you open an account with a broker, you're entering into a contract. And so what they do is, okay, the parent opens the account and retains the right to close the account. But what happens in the account is really on the kid. And uh, the parents can get alerts uh, when they're making when the minor is making transactions, uh, but basically it's, I'm gonna buy beer for my kid. That's really the way, I when I read the article, I was like, okay. Kind I think like, it's a, like the, if you're gonna do it, do it in the house yeah, kind of thing. <laughs> I don't want you out on the street corner drinking beer. So, mm-hmm. you know, have all your friends come over and get wasted in our basement. Uh, they can't do options, they can't do margin, thank God. And they do limit it to thirty grand per year in terms of deposits. Thirty grand a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And For I don't... kids that are thirteen to seventeen years old. That's a lot of thousand dollars. That's a lot of paper route. You know. Yeah, I'm not sure many parents have thirty grand lying around to just light on fire and give to a teenager. But it, it seems like everybody's just trying to capitalize on this whole Robin Hood stock trading phenomenon over the last years. And this is. This isn't even something that just pertains to uh, young, younger kids, you know, uh, teenagers, people in their 20s. Like, it just seemed like with nothing else to do during the pandemic and, and shutdowns and all that, that everybody picked up trading stocks or crypto as like a, a hobby because there was nothing else to do. And I'm, I'm just wondering, like, how is this actually going to continue for like the long term? I feel like this is the sort of thing that just disappears once the market 
uh, isn't isn't good or is like even just flat for a period of time. People are gonna get bored with this. It's summertime. Go outside, right. do something with your life. I think a healthy market correction, kind of a prolonged one for six months, will just kind of purge the system. Hey, this of isn't a lot fun anymore, and it's nice outside. I'm gonna go do something different. Yeah. <laughs> so I think like parents could potentially view this as like a practice account or something for their kids to like introduce them to the stock market. But one, it's real money. And two, they're buying actual shares of, it's not like a test stock market for them. Like that's, those are real companies that they're buying and, and selling. A thought that came into my head was like, who gets taxed on this money? Like, did it, does a 1099 parents, get sent yeah. to the parents? Yeah, like the parents, imagine the parents will get it. And they're claiming, if they're claiming the child is a dependent, then yeah. it's going to pass through to them. Right. It has to. So <laughs> imagine, gonna, yeah, imagine like the yeah, 1099 next 20 year. page 1099 from, yeah. from the buying one share of yeah. this and selling one share of that yeah i mean that that i hope is going to occur in these sort of sort of counts load it yeah. up with 500 bucks and tell your tell your kid to knock himself out yeah well there's also something else in the article that kind of got my ears a little pointy I, I think fidelity deserves some kind of kudos for figuring out a way to thread this needle where they can get younger investors into logging into the fidelity website so they Get them trained early. It's kind of the way I got trained on Pop-Tarts early. You know, the, I got into the Kellogg's early thing early and often is right. Um, yeah, so, so smart business move by Fidelity. Maybe not something that we should laud in terms of whether this is, like, good for the people right. participating in it or not. So the, the other part of this that I think kind of – I even read through the comments in the Wall Street Journal uh, at the end of the article – and no one even mentioned it because they just kind of slipped it in. Oh, yeah, the kids are going to be getting debit cards. Oh, okay. Like, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think a 14-year-old can open a bank account and get a debit card for themselves. Not without a parent. What's that? There's a, I think there's a quote from Jurassic Park when he was like, they got so worried, like, thinking about if they could that they didn't think about if they should. It's like, do we need this? Like, I, I don't know. I, especially, you know, the the caps being thirty thousand dollars a year. I was like, if the cap was a thousand dollars, load it up with five hundred dollars, and let them go to town. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's more my speed if we're gonna do something like yeah. this. But like, yeah. I don't know. If you have if you have thirty thousand dollars to give to your kid to let him trade away, then I guess you won't be needing student loans. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, couldn't couldn't this have been accomplished in the past already by the parent just opening like a custodial account for the kid and then giving them the login, telling them to do whatever they wanted? Yeah. Yes. So like they could have been doing sure it behind is, the scenes. Is this new? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's just I guess uh, it it's being sold it's being, as new. Right. It's being marketed as new, which yeah. which again from Fidelity's perspective of get more eyeballs onto our platform uh, makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's funny now I'm having flashbacks about Snap, Crackle, and Pop and, you know, all these other cereals that I used to eat all the time. Tony the Tiger. You know, there are 27 million accounts for juniors, for minors, already on the Fidelity platform. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know when folks have asked me over the years, like, I want to start putting money away for my kid's college education, and we talk about 
custodial accounts so they understand all the terms and then you say oh yeah when your child becomes legal age depending on the state here it's 21 in new jersey that account legally becomes theirs and that's pretty much the end of the conversation it's it's funny because yeah a lot of people exist in that world where they want to put money away for their child but they also are not willing to commit at least at the point in time we're usually discussing it to just like handing it over to them when they come of age, depending on what state they live in. So yeah, tricky, tricky from that perspective. There's not one where it's like, hey, it's in the kid's name, but uh, I get to keep it for myself if I change my mind later on. Right. You can, you can, yeah. If they're still a minor, you could, you could change your mind later on and unwind that. But uh, you certainly, there's an expiration date. So you reach the point and that's not an option anymore. There was also an article in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week, not losing your head while you're trying to buy a home right now. Uh, We've talked about it previously on podcasts and and videos and just around the office about how crazy the housing market has been, especially around here. And as we've been reading around the country as well, this article was, was outlining some questions to like ask yourself internally as you're putting in offers on houses, like how high do we really want to go and is it worth it? They put a couple stats just to outline how elevated the housing market is right now. And they said in, in March, there was 28% less inventory than the same time the year before. Couple that with super low rates and you've, you're getting bidding wars all over the place. Um, Plus you got people that are just streaming out of cities. Right. They, they just don't want to live in a city environment anymore. There have been plenty of instances uh, that they noted where people are getting $100,000 over the asking price for the house. And they even uh, mentioned how one house sold for uh, as high as $500,000 over the asking price because it had a pool. Well, I guess I'm not taking my pool pool out anytime soon. Some of the questions that they, they had in the article were, were pretty good for home buyers to remember or to, just to ask themselves. Under any circumstances, whether it's crazy market or not. Yeah, definitely. The first question I thought, though, was potentially a dangerous question for home buyers, and it was, how much house can you afford? I think some people, when you get pre-approved for a mortgage, they they give you the amount that's the maximum that you should be looking at. It doesn't necessarily mean... It's not a recommendation. Right, exactly. So that, that question of how much house can you afford can potentially be swayed in a, in a negative way by how much you get pre-approved for. They're not necessarily the same number. They're not, right. they're not looking at your actual monthly cash flow. They're just looking at other debt you have to service and figuring out um, you know, where that obligation, the mortgage, is, is going to fit into that in percentage terms. So I think you got to take their number, plug it into your actual expenses based on you know, all the other stuff you spend money on, because that doesn't as far as they're concerned, it doesn't really exist. They're not asking about that, but you're still going to have to do all of that. You're probably going to have more expenses as you move into a new place. So you may want to try to right size. It may or may not be the number they give you may or may not be what you can actually afford on a monthly basis. You know, you take that information and arrive at, at your own conclusions based on it. Yep. I know in conversations that I've had over the years, when people start asking about how much house I can afford, I go through the math with them. I mean, and it is literally back of the envelope math. But then I quickly add that, hey, I bought this new car. It's in the parking lot. That car can go 120 miles an hour. 
doesn't mean I'm going to drive it at 120 miles an hour. Right. It's the same thing in terms of how much house can you afford. You could go up to here, but understand, like, you're going to be eating ramen noodles, you know, until you're retired. Yeah, a, a, one of the follow-up questions, I think, it was, are you, are you ready for lifestyle changes? And that goes, that's exactly what you just said. It's yeah. like, if you're going to go to the upper limits of what you're approved for, for a mortgage, or even if, let's say, you're buying in cash, or you're going to put in a, an offer that's $100,000 over the asking price, you might get the house, but like, you got to fill it with furniture and continue yeah. to lead, uh, live in it. So yeah. are you prepared for lifestyle changes? Is that something that you want? I can appreciate where people are coming from with the market as it is, though, because it's got to be frustrating to know Let's assume you've figured out what you can afford and you're looking at houses that are just like they're just running away from you. And it's got to suck to sit there and be prudent and say, like, yeah, our threshold's been crossed crossed here. We've been outbid by a large margin like we just we can't afford to go higher. But I think you got to have whatever your number is in mind and just kind of stick to it as much as that stinks. Yeah. And, you know, like a lot of stories in the Wall Street Journal, they start out with, uh, you know, a, an example of someone who's been on the losing end of 20 offers for a house. I mean, this this is the situation that we're in right now. But why are we in this crazy situation? You know, it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, you see that your neighbor's house sold for way more than you ever thought your home was worth. And so you start thinking about selling your home, but where are you going to go? Yeah. Where are you going to go? That was the last question that they asked. It was like, why are you buying a house right now? That's what you were just saying. It's the, it, it, you can flip that to people that are selling their house. It's like, why are you selling your house right now? Yeah. If you're selling your house just because you can get $200,000 more than you thought, I mean, that I number that's is a, that's great. as foolish as the person rushing in to buy for $100,000 over asking price. I mean, you're, right. I think you're potentially making a, a similar mistake there in the sense that you're, you're thinking that you can time the real estate market, which for some reason people think they're better able to do than other markets in the world. And I, I don't think that they can. Yeah. Um, After so. all, we're we're all above average drivers. Yes. So <laughs> like yeah. Wobegon. Yeah. Right. Yes. You know, there are certain economic points that we look at every month that come out. Um, first of the first one related to this article is housing starts. And the second one is housing permits. Now, developers will get, if they're gonna build a new community, they're gonna like take down a forest of trees and just you know, add water and stir, you got a new community. Um, they get those permits sometimes seven, eight, nine years in advance. They get those permits. But the actual housing starts when they start swinging a, uh, swinging a hammer, very, very different. And housing starts are way down. Part of that is because they have nothing to swing their hammer into. There's like no materials. There's lumber prices are at record, record prices that we haven't seen. I mean, just shortages everywhere. The other part that we're running into why I think we're seeing these runaway prices is like you had alluded to, Tim, there's no inventory available. There's nothing coming on the market, but that may be changing. Conversation I had with a client uh, just last week down in South Carolina, he, he, he pointed out correctly, you know, 
Some people haven't been paying their rent for a year. And some people haven't been paying their mortgage now for a year because they know that they can't be evicted from their homes and they can't get foreclosed upon. What's going to happen? I don't know the answer, but what's going to happen when they start to permit you know, landlords to evict tenants for non-payment or start foreclosure? When can banks start to foreclose on these properties where there haven't been any mortgage payments now, in some cases for 15 months? I don't know. I think I think the the question kind of alludes to the idea that there's going to be a glut of inventory coming to the marketplace, which will drive prices down. But I don't know that that's necessarily a safe assumption. Well, I kind of agree with you. It's an unknown. I, I think there's the belief that there's going to be more inventory coming on the market, but that may just soak up the existing demand that's out there. If, if the programs were effective, the reason that they put them into place was to give people the time that they needed to get through this pandemic period of time. I mean, there may be people who are not paying rent or not paying their mortgage who are perfectly capable of doing so when the moratoriums end. We don't know that they're not paying it because they, they literally can't. Right. Um, they, they also may be back to work by then if they were out of work and that was the reason they weren't paying. So yeah, I think it's, uh, there's, there's going to be, best. there's I mean, going to be evictions and foreclosures, yeah, for sure. but it might not be to the extent that some people are anticipating. I've mm-hmm. heard people suggest that like that's going to happen and it's going to like totally tank, tank the real estate market and that everybody buying now is going to be like crying their eyes out or something. I, 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 I think that's a little, uh, I think that's again, extreme. it's like, you think you can time the real estate market? Be my guest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People have been saying that the, the housing market is, is going to, the bubble's going to burst and prices are going to start falling all over the place. It's like, well, that doesn't necessarily need to happen. Prices could also just stop going up, yeah. not necessarily go down. They could just level off, I, which I think is prices is, is likely. A, I mean, it's it's as likely as... Any, any other, other scenario, yeah, but right Tim, now. I think I think you're onto something because there is so much demand out there. People are getting, uh, you know, 15 offers in 15 hours uh, after listing the price, and many of them at or above the asking price. We personally know someone in Belmar listed their house, and that was the scenario: 15 hours, 15 listings. One of them was 100 grand over the over the ask. I mean, it's crazy. So I think that. As more inventory comes on, I think that will, I mean, I'm just guessing, but I'm thinking that the supply will meet the demand and the prices may just stay where they are um, and just not go up as as quickly, as exponentially as they have. Put a bow on it. Like if you're in the situation now where you need or want a home, uh, you, you need to know your limit and it may take a lot longer than it might have in the past in terms of your limit being a match for what somebody's willing to accept on a deal, but don't lose your head and you know you, you got to know what you can afford because that's that's a big commitment that you're making. Tim, I think we have to talk about target date funds. There was an article in Think Advisor that that just got us thinking about target date funds in general. Um, the article was about how s- some lawmakers are asking the government to to kind of probe into target date funds and see how they've done over over the last over the last year or so through the pandemic so they they noted in the article how there's now more than 1.5 trillion dollars in target date funds uh, and we've seen in a lot of retirement plans more and more 
that that's they're becoming the default option when you put money into it instead of money going into stable or into cash for you to go in and manually invest it it's just getting put into a target date fund they said in the article and i agree like not all target date funds are created equal so it's still worth kind of like looking under under the hood of the target date fund to like to know what you're investing and you need to choose the right the right date the right target date fund and and the right allocation just about every mutual fund family out there has their own version of target date funds and the allocations that you'll see are not the same from fund family to fund family now i i think i'll start though by saying the idea that they're like the default option and that you go into one that you know based on your age they'll say whichever one lands you at age like 60 or 65 is where you're being that's way better than being defaulted into cash no matter what yeah is in the target date fund because at least the money's invested and growing for you in some capacity and it's close right but yeah these things can be totally different in terms of what constitutes them under the hood some of them are just stocks and bonds and are super cheap like right. like a vanguard or a fidelity target date fund some of them use active funds some of them mix in alternatives uh some of them are really expensive that was that you was need one, to know yeah. what's in there yeah that was one thing they pointed out right. in the article was that make sure that it's it's and i agree that it's just a stock bond allocation and that there's over the last couple of years there have been different things to come through from lawmakers that are starting to pave the way for target date funds to start allowing alternative investments and we talked was that last week's podcast yeah, about we, alternative we talked investments talked about the Pennsylvania right. state teachers retirement plan i mean it's the second largest pension plan in the state yeah. of Pennsylvania they're investing in pistachio farms yeah so right, just, i have i have a 1% allocation in my target date fund to pistachios who knew right yeah, yeah. exactly so right, like yeah. that that is the point right there that you need to know what it's what it's invested in because these if the uh, if your target date fund ends up like this Pennsylvania pension plan and you have 50% in alternative investments uh, could be on a slippery slope of risk it's it's messy because i can see you know the 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 fees that are generated through venture capital and alternative investments uh, they're massive and this is a massive pool of money. So it's hard to kind of keep the, you know, the parties apart uh, because I'm sure that people are just, you know, looking at this with mouthwatering ideas about we can generate X number of fees by placing our alternative funds into these target date funds, especially if a retiree has 20 or more years. Well, you know, we've got to get some harvest from the pistachios. Uh, right, some point in the next 20 years. Yeah. So it's very hard to value these things, uh, these alternative investments. Sometimes the fund companies are, are using these funds to like seed their new new ideas too. It's like they open a new mutual fund and they're gonna put a sliver of it into the 2030 target yeah. fund and nobody even knows they're investing in it, but it's getting- Generate assets. It's getting dollars yeah. by default every two weeks as people right. are being paid. So it's, it's pretty easy to identify because you know the fund families that are going to jam expensive crap into their target date funds and the ones who aren't going to for the most part we do at least but yeah. i don't i don't know that investors at large are aware of that sort of thing 
I also uh, think sometimes that it's just my opinion, but I think that target date funds can become the garbage cans for some of these investment companies because if they if something was so juicy and so good, they would keep it for themselves. And they also have a steady line of buyers with money coming into these target date funds when they have to offload you know, some lousy junk bond positions, hey, here it goes, right into target date funds. Right. It's a slippery slope. That's kind of what I was alluding. Like, if you're working, if, if your menu is offered by, like, an active mutual fund shop, then I think what you just said is, is probably uh, more likely to be true. If, if you can look under the hood and see that these are just indexes underlying your target date fund, then that's not happening. Right. And those are the good ones, uh, the, best, the best ones that you can get in terms of, I don't know a lot about investing. I know how old I am. Uh, this is cheap, index-based, blend of stocks and bonds. Good. Yeah. 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 I they, could do a lot worse trying to guess on my own. I'm going to use this thing. But I, th I think that, you know, we always talk about how people need to understand what they're investing in. And that goes for target date funds, too, because, I mean, we've seen people come in with an allocation with, like, three different target date funds and then other funds as well. So it's like there's overlap and it, it's yeah. like they don't really understand what the target date fund is. Right. Um, so they're, you know, just sprinkling their money everywhere. Whereas, you know, the, the idea of the target date fund is that like it's all under one wrapper. Like you get the allocation and it's going to change over time for I think, you. I think people miss that, Tim. In, in Can you just talk about that for a moment about how the allocation changes? Sure. I mean, so if you're, you know, if the, if the target date fund is uh, 2035, so that's where you're planning on retiring for, for right now, it's going to have a larger allocation to stocks, equities, and lesser of an allocation to bonds. Uh, and as you get closer and closer to that target retirement date of 2035, then it's going to shift the allocation to lessen the risk in the account because that's typically what, what people like to do with their allocation as they close in on retirement. Yeah. Using these without the, obviously there's no context. So like you could be adding to a plan like this and you could have other investments surrounding it and you may or may not need that specific account to do what the target date fund is designed to do over time, or you may. So again, like understanding what it's going to do and why, and then making sure that it's a fit for the rest of your picture is sensible because you know, they're just they're just using like a one size fits all philosophy. And again, I think it's way better than money sitting in cash. Yep. It's probably better than it being randomly picked by somebody who has no inclination or interest in doing so. Uh, but there's there's a little more to dig into there if if uh, you know you really want to fine tune it and make sure it's it's right for you. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 356 of the Maluli Asset Management podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.